0: welcome to uh, the next breakfast with jesus talk in which we're continuing our journey through the book of ezekiel Um, as i do this talk i happen to be in italy um, so not in australia uh, on a on a wonderful european holiday with anne Uh, this talk is a little bit of an excursion Uh, so yes i begin with ezekiel but i'm actually going to spend most of it Looking at one of the great chapters in all literature, uh, which is uh, the chapter called The Grand Inquisitor from Dostoevsky's great book, The Brothers Karamazov. So I'm calling this talk The Grand Inquisitor and the Battle for the Human Mind. So, what's this got to do with Ezekiel? Well, in the last talk, we tried to rescue the idolatry sins of Israel uh, from their misuse by modern preachers, which I critiqued. And what, One of the common uh, method, metaphors of modern preaching is to, is to you know, modernize idolatry. And idolatry is unquestionably the main sin in the Old Testament and in Ezekiel. So um, it's understandable that you know, preachers to an evangelical or a modern audience will try and make it relevant to us by talking about the sins of idolatry, which in fact becomes uh, bad priorities in the Christian life. And I critique that as uh, very inadequate and even unbiblical. Uh, and instead, what we did in that talk was we dug deeper into the worldview that was inherent in ancient Near Eastern idolatry. And in doing so, we use the insights that both Ian Proven and John Walton have given us about the prevalent um, ancient Near Eastern cosmologies and religion uh, to uncover the worldview behind idolatry. So uh, today, idolatry per se is not relevant to many of us, but uh, the worldview that lies behind is relevant, I will argue, and in many ways is still prevalent today, and we we run the risk of uh, syncretically um, letting them infect the gospel. So what we saw to, uh, that we have in play in Ezekiel, and indeed in all of Israel's history, is a battle of worldviews. And, and that battle is much subtler than merely polytheism versus monotheism, as important as that battle is. And uh, we we summarized the pagan worldview as one built on superstition. And it had three pillars in it. Um, a view of humanity, a view of the good life, and a view of God. This is my summary, not uh, Ian's or John's, but I think it's very much fed by them. So the view of humanity was a low anthropology. Humans were universally seen as as servant class, servile, and as the puppets of the gods. Um, the only exception were the kings. So this low view of humanity then led to, understandably, a low vision of the whole project of life as merely getting through. And this is the second um, the second pillar, a vision of the good life as mere self-interest. So their religion and their superstition was self-interested. Um, pragmatic self interest or survival using the gods to get success, having the gods on your side so you could win the war um, have have a fertile um, wife, um, have good crops and rain, etc 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 and the final pillar was a view of God as capricious, so as far as they were concerned, the gods were capricious and they were de facto purposeless um, the gods had had no goals in the cosmos that we were aware of, um, and in fact they were opaque and unknowable. Perhaps they had goals, but they're certainly not implied. Now, once you express the worldview that way, of course, it's it can be you, you can see the parallels to modern thinking uh, much more clearly. And in fact, uh, Tom Wright, um, in his book, uh, *The Day the Revolution Began*, does critique a lot of modern gospel preaching as paganizing the gospel. won't go into that now, but um, I think you could see how that's possible from these three pillars. So overturning that worldview was the task of Israel. It's a task they failed in. This is what the prophets are saying. Um, the, the mission of Israel was to Uh, advance a high view of humanity as made in the image of God and in fact superior to idols and the book of Isaiah makes a lot of that just mocking the materiality of idols in contrast to the complex mind of the of of the maker who made the idols secondly um, a high view of the good life not viewing humanity as just survivors but As agents and co-creators with God and finally a grasp of God's purposes in the cosmos as central to all all religion Um, and we've seen in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel that the prophets intimated what was climaxed in the gospel and that God's purposes were shaped by love and were irresistible So that's what we talked about and Anne and I, as we were studying these chapters in Ezekiel, which were chapters 12 to 14, um, Anne picked up in in the discussion we had on how we, on the modern Christian version of this pagan view in how we often think of God answering prayers. Um, And she was seeing our view on suffering for instance, prayers about healing, as God breaking his side of the religious bargain. You know, why did God allow this to happen to me? Um, And uh, it was a a poignant conversation for us because as I think many of you would know, uh, Anne's had a long struggle with a very painful illness. But actually that's a pagan view Uh, Sorry if there's a dog barking in the background. It is Italy, after all, and they love dogs. I can't do much about that. Um, Anne had this wonderful phrase that we can be distracted by easy joys rather than the giver of those joys. Uh, So our motivation in religious life is to navigate life and live comfortably. Uh, And our expectation is that's God's side of the religious bargain. As she was... um, Talking like this, I immediately uh, turned my mind to the, uh, this fabulous chapter in Dostoevsky on the Grand Inquisitor. And that's how I got there, because um, he says much the same thing, um, very, very much more profoundly than either Anne or I could. It is indeed one of the most famous chapters in all literature. Uh, now, it's a fable. Um, In other words, it's a a parable told by one of the brothers, Ivan. And it does, I think, capture this pagan worldview and and how it's infiltrated Christianity and the church. Uh, Because with chilling artistry, Dostoevsky makes the grand inquisitor the persuasive voice of the pagan mindset, masquerading as Christianity and modern religion. Indeed, it is the voice of the devil dressed up as an angel of light. In this particular case, a Cardinal of the Counter-Reformation in 16th century Spain. So here's the, uh, here's the dramatic situation in the, in, in the fable. The Grand Inquisitor uh, finds Jesus again, 1500 years after uh, the resurrection. He finds him in the marketplace of Seville, healing and preaching all over again. And the Grand Inquisitor, who's 90 years old, has just the day before burnt 100 heretics at the stake. And then he sees Jesus. He recognises him immediately because he's healing a girl, actually raising her from the dead. And, And the Grand Inquisitor is horrified. So he orders the arrest of Jesus, incarcerates him with the intention of killing him all over again. The irony is massive. So... The whole chapter actually is a monologue. Jesus says nothing the whole time, which again, of course, is a reprise of the Pontius Pilate dialogue slash monologue in John 19. And here's how, it, here's how the fable begins um, in Dostoevsky's words. In the deep darkness, the iron door of the prison suddenly opens and the old grand inquisitor himself slowly enters carrying a lamp. He is alone the door is immediately locked behind him he stands in the entrance and for a long time for a minute or two gazes into his face at last he quietly approaches sets the lamp on the table and says to him is it you you but receiving no answer he quickly adds do not answer be silent after all what could you say? I know too well what you would say, and you have no right to add anything to what you have already said once. Why then have you come to interfere with us?" The Inquisitor then berates Jesus and offers us a chilling insight, unfolding insight into the psychology of control and repression. And the voice of the Inquisitor becomes the voice of any dictator, either religious or secular. Uh, In fact, Dostoevsky had in mind not just the excesses of the church, but just as much in 19th century Russia. He was confronting the forces of nihilism, uh, nihilism, materialism and atheism. But in the end, this voice becomes strangely demonic and we recognize it is the voice of Satan. This is because the the monologue slash dialogue is actually about how it's a dialogue because, by the way, it's a contest between the devil's view and God's view. That's why it's really a dialogue. Uh, It's actually about how humans govern the earth. It's not just about individual morality. And the Inquisitor's point is that we govern the earth by control, not by love. And his main complaint, a vitriolic complaint, bitter complaint against Christ, is that Christ introduced freedom to humanity. And in so doing, he vastly overestimated both human capacity and human desire. This is what the Inquisitor says, you overestimated mankind. For of course, they are slaves, though they were created rebels. I swear, man is created weaker and baser than you thought him. How can you ever accomplish? How can he ever accomplish the same things as you? Respecting him so much, you demanded too much of him. Telling words. By the way, sorry about the masculine pronoun. That's just Dostoevsky's 19th century words. So what the Inquisitor argues is that humans actually don't want freedom. It's too great a burden. He says this, There is nothing more seductive for man than the freedom of his conscience, but there is nothing more tormenting either. And so instead of a firm foundation for appeasing human conscience, once and for all, you chose everything that was unusual, enigmatic and indefinite. You chose everything that was beyond man's strength. Instead of taking over man's freedom, you increased it and forever burdened the kingdom of the human soul with its torments." Epic words. So the inquisitor says that humans, instead of freedom, prefer to be controlled for someone else to do the thinking for them. Ironically, though, the Inquisitor goes further. He he goes into what God wants from humanity, since he actually has God in Christ standing before him. and, And this is what he says, what God wants. You desired the free love of man, that he should follow you freely, seduced and captivated by you. Instead of the firm ancient law, man had henceforth to decide for himself. With a free heart, what is good and evil, having only your image before him as a guide. So, you know, what he's doing is he's blaming God in Christ for wanting far too much from humanity and basing that desire on too high a vision of humanity. And he said that God in Christ wanted love from humanity and not any kind of love, but love that comes from freedom. Yeah, you know, Look, the Inquisitor is not advan- advocating secularism. Actually, it's religion, he says, that does this more than anything. Remember, he's talking as a 16th century cardinal in the Counter-Reformation. And, and he sees religion as doing, including the Christian religion, as doing the job that humans want, which is doing the thinking for them and removing from them the burden of freedom, corralling them, corralling them, sorry, into compliant universal automaton cultures. So I think you can see some of the echoes of the pagan worldview in the inquisitor's diatribe. Uh, The heart of his vicious diatribe is that God wants too much from humanity. He wants to be understood and loved. And this was the heart of the Abrahamic Mosaic revelation of God, and we found this in the prophets. God's ultimate plan was to be understood and loved as a result of that understanding, as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter nine, You know, that we can know God. Now, what this implies is freedom and free choice on the behalf of humanity. But paganism did not see humanity as free, but as slaves of the gods with little or no understanding of what the gods wanted. Uh, the gods were purposeless, they were fickle, they were unpredictable, they had no moral vision, And these were the gods that the Inquisitor believed in. Gods without purpose, without any high vision for humanity. And in this dismal cosmos of the Inquisitor, who, as I said, becomes the devil, the only tactic available for humanity is survival. Short-term gains and deliverances with no ultimate purpose in view. Uh, This does sound a lot like the modern world, where our ambitions, religious and otherwise, uh, can get narrowed down to success in life, a good job, health and wealth. Um, and if we get these, we don't have to think too much. Um, the problem with this is, as Anne said in the comments that precipitated um, this whole train of thought in me, is the danger is we can narrow our prayer life to the same mentality as you know, requests for getting through difficulties. Now, of course, this is a subtle distinction because I'm not saying, and I don't think the Bible says, that we should not want these things and need them. As Jesus said, your Heavenly Father knows you have need of these things. It's more a matter of focus. The key is that we should need them merely as vehicles towards a bigger end, which is the ends for which God has created us and indeed the whole cosmos. So this this kind of pragmatism of this you know, getting through life that the... Uh, The Inquisitor now, after the initial diatribe, he turns to this uh, once he's finished berating Jesus for complicating history um, and interfering with the Church's control of humanity. And he very famously turns to the temptations of Christ in the wilderness and launches into the most stunning analysis of these temptations that I have ever read. Uh, Of course, his analysis is... is dark if we take it at face value, but really it's Dostoevsky's voice behind the Inquisitor that we need to listen to, and he's working with irony about, which I'll say more uh, in a a moment. Um, So what the Inquisitor says is that the three temptations are three questions. Uh, I'm not going to look at them all because the chapter's too complex to do that. But he says they're the greatest questions ever conceived. That's what the inquisitor says, because he says they capture the contradictions of the human condition on the whole earth and throughout all history. This is the words he uses, the inquisitor uses. He said, by three questions alone, one can see that one is dealing with a mind, not human and transient, but eternal and absolute. For in these three questions, all of subsequent human history is brought together and foretold. Three images are revealed that will take in all of the insoluble historical contra- contradictions of human nature over all the earth. So in, the, you can see, in this way, you can see Dostoevsky does not see the temptations as merely specific to Jesus, but rather to Jesus as the second Adam, as the representative of all humanity. And he's framing these questions really as the successors to Adam's fall in the garden. Satan's question back then was, has God said? Where Satan first began downgrading humanity's hopes and aspirations and challenging the goodness of God and creation. As I read it, I couldn't help think of uh, um so Bukakov's uh, magnificent line that the big question that slithers across the face of the earth, like a serpent, is who shall govern the earth. Um, I suspect that uh, Dostoevsky was inspired by that comment at this point. So the Inquisitor says that the devil, in The Temptation, whom he, he just characterizes the devil, memorably not as a fanciful demon, but as the spirit of the ages, he he calls him that dread and intelligent spirit of non-being and self-destruction. Those are his words. The devil was offering advice to Jesus on how to govern the cosmos. He, the devil is saying in the temptations, look, Jesus, this is how the cosmos is to be ruled. You didn't get it, I'm going to tell you. And uh, the first temptation, which was turn the stones into bread, lays out the devil's way of ruling the cosmos and of humanity in chilling terms. It's chilling because they are so true to the true realities of world history. He takes this temptation, first temptation, to turn stones into bread, way beyond merely a temptation to relieve Jesus' hunger with a miracle, which is how I'm used to reading the temptation. Instead, he amplifies the temptation into a manner of ruling whereby the bread, quote unquote, that Satan wants him to create from stones is a metaphor for all the short-term functional desires that humans want satisfied, that all emperors and tyrants know is the way to control them. Give them bread and they will be satisfied. So this is what, the Inquisitor says, recall the first question. Its meaning, though not literally, was this. You want to go into the world and you, Jesus, are going empty-handed with some promise of freedom, which they, in their simplicity, cannot even comprehend, which they dread and fear, for nothing has ever been more insufferable for human society than freedom. But do you see these stones in this Bare, scorching desert, turn them into brand, and mankind will run after you like sheep, grateful and obedient, though eternally trembling, lest you withdraw your hand and loaves, uh, and your loaves cease from them. Incredible words. So in in the Inquisitor's view, this is how to rule the earth. Give people the basic needs, full bellies, they'll follow you. And supporting this dark view was his very low view of humanity. People are only interested in quote-unquote bread, which turns humans into just sensate beings like animals. So in the end, we can see that the Inquisitor is not only talking about religion and not even politics, he's talking about humanity. He sees that the gospel and what Jesus presents to us is a worldview about humanity, not a religion. It declares who we are and what is our destiny and calling and how we manage ourselves. The gospel is talking about the kingdom of the human soul and this is the kingdom that interests God. So this whole dialogue is incredibly instructive for us in in taking God and our faith out of a religious box and positioning the gospel, not as religion with individual salvation, but as a worldview and an anthropology. It's a very powerful vision. How do we get a positive vision from such a cynical chapter? Um, Because in listening to the Grand Inquisitor really diagnose the dark side of human nature and um, uh, humans not wanting freedom, etc., we've been looking at the mind of the devil, not the mind of God how on earth do we see a positive vision and the answer lies in the literary technique of irony which is the manner of discourse of the whole chapter and i want to finish with that Um, so the entire chapter is being worked through an ironic uh, um, discourse now irony is a is a trope it's a form of metaphor It's a trope of language whereby essentially we say one thing, but we mean another, something quite different. It's very much like uh, like making a bronze statue. Uh, You first make a model and then you create a mould around the profile of that that model so that the the mould actually mirrors the true statue or the true model, but in the negative. Uh, so the mould will capture every wrinkle, every curve, but in reverse. And then you pour into the mould, molten bronze, and you let it set. Then you break the mould, which is now just an outer casing, and the true shape of the statue is unveiled. So that's kind of a really good metaphor for how irony works. Irony is like the negative mould. It captures every wrinkle and curvature of the truth, but in negative relief. The real truth of what's being said is not in the mould, but in the bronze statue that'll emerge once the mould is broken. Now in literature, unlike sculpture, uh, the the, the irony doesn't finish the job. Um, The author wants us, the audience, to do that. So we have to pour the molten bronze into the ironic mould, and that means our thoughts our thoughts, it's left to us as the audience to construct what is implied, the positive that's implied by the negative mould. So the true gospel is inferred through all the irony of this chapter and all through the Grand Inquisitor's awful words. And what emerges is the true what I think Dostoevsky is saying is the true gospel of Jesus and the heart of this gospel is freedom not freedom in the modern sense of the word, which means independence. It means freedom to choose the good. And this freedom is not given to mankind as an arbitrary attribute, like I'd give a colour of red or blue to a painting, but it's given for a purpose. To be free as an activity to understand and love God. Um, The corollary of freedom is god's side so freedom's the human side god's side there's a corollary implied here which is his desire his desire which is that mankind will find him and love him and obviously that's what the grand inquisitor denied but Dostoevsky is implying is the real heart of the gospel and this is subtle but we know what this means easily in human relationships Uh, here's a parable. If a king falls in love with a peasant girl in his kingdom, he can force her to marry him, but he'll never know if she really loves him for what he is. Uh, This kind of love will only work with slavery on the girl's part. She'll be controlled and coerced. The only way for the king to know if she really loves him is to disguise himself as a peasant and try to woo her then he'll know if she truly loves him, if she has only, if she has the freedom to say no. If the king does that and lays aside uh, his status to woo her, he will also need to trust that she'll make a good choice and that his intrinsic attributes, not his status, will win her over. His goodness will win her over. So it's a risky strategy. No two ways about that. And this is how Dostoevsky sees freedom as being at the heart of the gospel. Not freedom in the modern democratic sense as free to make a choice, but rather as the necessary corollary of love, the grounds of love. And this is the great project that Jesus unleashed on the world, the freedom to love God. Uh, So this vision of the gospel in the chapter uh, actually is not primarily a religious vision. It's not framed as compliance to rituals or morality or even belonging to a church or anything like that or you know, um, agreeing to a set of doctrines. Rather, it sees the gospel as a great project of love based on a high view of humanity and in pursuit of a majestic and divine goal, which is that God wants our love as the king wants the peasant girl to love him. If the king takes off his disguise, by the way, at any point during the experiment, then all will be lost and she will love him for his gifts rather than his person, or at least there's the suspicion that she would just be loving him for his gifts. Uh, By the way, that's how Dostoevsky sees miracles in the second temptation. He sees miracles um, as taking off the disguise. Um, By the way, that's my metaphor, not Dostoevsky's. But he sees miracles as, in fact, taking off the disguise and ruining the project. Because uh, in essence, Dostoevsky is seeing um, the gap between the eternal and the mortal, the Creator and the uh, the uncreated Creator and the creation. It's like an unfair power gap, and it's a gap that, if that gap is maintained, <laughs> it can only initiate a controlling relationship, a master servant one, like the pagan worldview, like the king. Um, in all these regalia, um, you know going and visiting the peasant girl and saying "What to marry you it, it won 't give God what God desires, which is true relationship. And, and true relationship must be equal as in person to person. So God has arranged an incarnation, a disguising of divinity, a disguising of superiority, so that he can establish a true relationship. and freedom is the only ground within which this relationship can be forged. So, um, quite an excursion. (laughs) Um, By the way, if you want to read the chapter, have a go at it. Um, It's just magnificent. And to be honest with you, when he was reading, when he was articulating control and and, and the, the way despots and tyrants use the giving of bread, quote unquote, as a means of control, I couldn't help but think of uh, modern <laughs> examples of that. I won't go into them now. You could imagine them for yourself. But in the end, to bring us back to where we started, we can see that the Inquisitor's views, they're really pagan. They're the pagan worldview that we began with and with which Israel was competing. Uh, a very, very uh, low view of humanity. And it is the view of the devil, according to Dostoevsky. This superstitious worldview is the devil's worldview. Obviously, uh, we can draw a lot from this. Uh, we need to avoid the pagan worldview infecting our faith and, and our belief. And Better still, I like to go positive. I always find that much more helpful. Um, that you know, What this says to me, the challenge to me, ongoing and inspiring really, but ongoing, is we need to build a view of the gospel that rises way above religion, Um, it's actually a view of the gospel as freedom and as a vastly optimistic anthropology. And it's a view of God as vastly more loving and desiring of love than we could have ever expected. It's a view that in the end can only be realised in the incarnation, which retains both a high view of humanity and a humbled view of God. So, um, I trust you enjoy the excursion. Uh, there's a lot in it. Um, and um, uh, as I say, I recommend having a read of Dostoevsky's uh, uh, the, the Whole of the Brothers Karamazov is a bit of a... Uh, it, it, it's, a it, it's a book I've never managed to finish. I've tried three times, but only got 100 pages in. But The Grand Inquisitor is a great chapter. Uh, God bless you and uh, may these thoughts uh, inspire you.